Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You'd open your Bibles now to Romans chapter 15. We're beginning a new sermon series this morning. For the next six weeks, between now and the first Sunday of Advent, we're going to be looking at the final words of the epistle to the Romans. We'll be wrapping up Romans. We've spent two years now in the book of Romans. Lori was telling me the other day she's really going to miss Romans. And I told her, don't worry, there's some other good books in the Bible as well. But I understand the sentiment. We've, we've spent a lot of time here, and it's been a real encouragement. A lot has happened to us during that time. And so it will be a time that we remember. Well, let's take a look at our text, beginning in verse 14. We'll read through to verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Lord, we pray for understanding now by the power of your Spirit. Amen. You're going to need to keep an eye on that one. You need to watch out for that one. You've heard those words before, maybe directed at at uh, a young person or someone of your acquaintance. And, and when you say something like that, keep an eye on that one. Context is everything. Usually, when you say it that way, it's a kind of warning. You need to watch out for that guy. He might be up to something. When uh, you've got a group of boys together and they're, they're really quiet all of a sudden, you think, hmm, better keep an eye on them. Watch out. But sometimes... We say words like that, and it's not a warning. It's actually an encouragement. If you're a paratrooper, you're about to jump out of the, the airplane, and you're nervous, the, the jump officer might point to the guy up front and say, keep an eye on him. Follow his example, in other words. Do what he does. Keep watch on him. Sometimes keeping a watch is a way of taking care of people. You've got to keep an eye on him because he has needs, and in pride maybe won't vocalize them. So keep an eye out to make sure that, that if he encounters difficulty, we can help. Sometimes it just means something like a temperature check. As we work together on something, it's important to keep an eye out, to keep a watch in one another, to make sure we don't grow weary in well-doing. 
right, to encourage those who need encouragement. Lots of different meanings, all depending on context, but, but every context, there's one thing that these words have in common, whether it's a warning or a temperature check, encouragement, taking care of people, whatever it is. In every case, the meaning is focus here. Focus here. There may be a variety of reasons to focus, but the direction is to turn your eyes to this, to pay attention to this, to take care of this. Don't let this slip through the cracks. This is important. In our text, Paul is doing something similar. He's telling us what to watch for. Indirectly, he's telling us where to look. As we continue to the end of the book, Paul is going to be talking about details of his ministry. He's going to mention some needs that they're facing in the larger church. He's going to throw some greetings, some shout-outs to some fellow laborers in the gospel. And uh, he's also going to give some warnings. And it's important as he does this that we understand that, that beneath the surface, what Paul is doing is he's saying, focus here. Watch out for these things. This is what you need to be paying attention to. When we get to this part of the book of Romans, or really any of the Pauline epistles, there's a tendency to kind of go into autopilot. Like we've, we've worked through all the deep doctrinal stuff. We've gotten all the practical application. And this is the sign-off. This is when you just get kind of a random list of stuff, like Paul's closing out his letter, and he's like, oh, yeah, wait, wait, add something here. Be sure to send greetings to so-and-so. And you're like, we don't even know who this person is. So this stuff, we can fast-forward over that. And that's what we tend to do. We tend to do one of two things. One, we'll race to the end. So the time you get here, it's like, oh, I think I can do this in a sermon. I think we can kind of cover this ground quickly. We uh, treat these parting words as if they don't have much to teach us. Another thing we tend to do in moments like this is we start drilling down into the minutia. Like passages like these are where we'll start taking words and phrases and really digging underneath those things and trying to find layers of meaning, kind of proof texting, all sorts of issues that the epistle isn't actually addressing. Instead of doing either of those two things, over the next six weeks, what we're going to do is try to step back and see the larger structure, the larger trajectory of Paul's concerns. Like, what are the things, as he's signing off, that he is specifically mindful about? Where is he saying to the Romans, you need to watch this? You need to keep an eye out for this. You need to remember this. That's what we're going to do. Paul is telling us, focus here. And that's what we're going to do. Whenever you leave on a journey, one of the things you do, or at least if you're a, an organized person, you, you try to think of all the stuff that needs to be done. Parents do this a lot when they're leaving their, their kids at home alone for the first time. You've got a kid who's maybe old enough to watch the others, and you're going out on a date night or something. But as you leave, you leave instructions. You know, here's what you need to look out for. Here's who you need to keep an eye on. Here's what you need to call, the number you need to dial if anything goes wrong. Where do you turn for help? That sort of thing. Paul's doing something similar. He's signing off on his letter. And because he can't just shoot emails every day to the church, he's putting in these important things 
that they need to remain focused on. So as Paul closes, the question we've got to ask is, where is his focus? Where is he pointing us when it comes to the everyday mission of the church? That's what this series is going to be about. And as we'll see week after week for six weeks, he's going to highlight for us the ones to watch. And this is helpfully summarized for you on the front of your order of worship. If you leave here, you can take that with you, and you'll have a roadmap for what we're going to be watching out for between now and Advent. We've got to keep an eye on the ones who've never heard, on those who need our help, on those who need our prayer, on those who serve with us, and on those who strive against us. And above all else, we've got to watch the one who is able to strengthen us. As Paul speaks to the church in Rome, he's also speaking to us, Grace. He's telling us where our focus as a church needs to be. These are the ones to watch, the ones to look out for, the ones to guard against. And as we go, we'll talk about the tools God gives us to do that. So as you look at our text, one thing that shines out very clearly is the priority of Paul's apostolic ministry, where he places the priority. The priority for him is clearly on those who have not heard. And the first of those we must watch out for, the priority for us in our life as a church must be, as it was for Paul, on those who have not heard. But as we look, before we get there, just want to say a few words of wonder about the health of the Roman church. These are amazing words that Paul opens with. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. I'd like to think you belong to a good church. But imagine if you were part of a church that the apostle Paul was satisfied with. That in writing to your church, he said, you know what? I'm satisfied with you. I don't know about you, but I would feel a heavy weight lifted if the Apostle Paul said to us, I'm satisfied with where you're at. The Roman church, we've been able to see this by implication as we've gone through the text. This is not a dysfunctional church. This is not like the church in Corinth where Paul has to fire off letter after letter to try to course correct and and, and keep them from the brink of heresy. The Roman church is solid. The Roman church is healthy. This is a church that is full of goodness, whose members are full of knowledge, who can teach, who can instruct one another. Paul has been getting into some deep stuff in the book of Romans because he can Because this is not a church that that needs milk. It's a church that can eat the meat of the gospel. And that's why Paul is satisfied. It's a remarkable thing to dig into the depths of theological truth as he's done in this letter. These believers are virtuous. Uh, They have orthopraxy. They have good practice. They are living their faith. They're full of goodness. They are doing what the church ought to do. And they have orthodoxy as well. They're full of knowledge. They're doing the right things, and they're believing the right things as well. So much so that even without Paul, they're capable of instructing themselves. This is a church that 
that is capable of being an anchor and a light. And indeed, the church in Rome for centuries was exactly that. And yet, Paul has written them this letter, and he has written to them boldly on some things. A bold reminder, he says, because he has a unique authority to speak. They have goodness, they have knowledge, but Paul has something more. Paul has been called as an apostle to the Gentiles. But on some points, he says, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is called to be the one who brings the gospel to the Gentiles. And he sees this, and the metaphor he uses is priestly. Like just as we talk about Jesus' priesthood, we say Jesus is the priest who offered himself up on the altar as a sacrifice for sin. There's also this reciprocal offering up of believers to God. Like we offer up ourselves as a, a life of sacrifice in imitation of Christ. And so Paul sees himself as, as helping the Gentiles offer themselves up in this way, an acceptable sacrifice to God. And he's doing it through direction. He's doing it through teaching. He's doing it by clarifying for them the, the complex wonders of the Christian faith. And he's uniquely qualified to do this by right of his office. He's going to give them clear, authoritative instruction. He's going to do it boldly because he's been called in a way that no other apostle was to speak these things. So he's giving us an explanation. He says, the church is healthy. The church is in good shape. But I've been called to speak boldly and to push you farther, to take you deeper into the things of Christ. And that's the reason that I've written to you the way that I have. So he ends with encouragement, not rebuke, but also an explanation why they need to take to heart the things that he's written to them in this epistle. Then he speaks of the power of that ministry, that apostolic ministry that he's been given. It's an incredible power. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. And listen to the way that this has been accomplished, the way this work has been done. He says, by word and deed, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. It's interesting because as we've seen in the book of Romans, when the apostle Paul presents the gospel to us, he presents the gospel basically as this, the work of salvation is God's alone. If you've been seeking and striving in your own strength for salvation, you can give that up. It's futile. The work is God's alone. And now he's going farther than that and saying the results of his ministry, everything that has been accomplished through his life, all of that was the work of God through the power of the Spirit working through him, that the ministry itself and every aspect and detail was a supernatural work, that every time the Gentiles heard the gospel and believed, it was a miracle of quickening of the Spirit bringing those stone hearts to life. That's the power of the ministry, and it's a triune 
power. He acknowledges here. Guys, we talked about this Wednesday night, the the significance of of a triune God. But you see, as as Paul's describing things here, he refers to Christ, the, the work of God the Father, and also the work of the Spirit. That all three persons of the Trinity are at work making the gospel work, at work in us. The word indeed, these apply to us now. A healthy ministry of the gospel in our day and age must be a work of word and deed. We cannot merely proclaim the truth and not live it. And we also can't just live good lives but not proclaim the truth. Word and deed are necessary. In the apostolic age, before Scripture had been given, the Spirit also worked signs and wonders to testify to the authority that had been given to the apostles, this unique authority that Paul possessed. These signs and wonders are recorded for us and handed down to us in the words of Scripture so that we might know that the apostles spoke with the power given to them by God. Indeed, that all their work was the work of the Spirit in them. And this fueled the scope of the apostolic ministry, the scope or trajectory, let's say, of that ministry. Paul says, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. If you get a map out or you look at the maps in the back of many Bibles and you start in Jerusalem and then you put your, your finger there and you want to get to Rome, you can't go in a straight line because there's water. You have to kind of arc your way around and kind of go in a semicircle to get there. And when you do that, you'll start up and you'll go through Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today, and then you'll cross over into Europe and you'll be in Macedonia where Greece is, and then you'll kind of go up a little bit and you'll be in what we call the Balkans now, what the Romans called Illyricum. And when you get there, you'll be on the eastern side of the Adriatic, and right across the Adriatic is Italy, And that's where Rome is. And so Paul is describing the arc of his ministry, carrying the gospel out from Jerusalem through Samaria towards the uttermost ends of the earth with Rome as his destination, as Rome as the place he's trying to get to. The very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus kind of maps this out for us in Acts 1 Verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when we read those words now, we think of that as this sort of, you know, great unfulfilled boast. But the reality is, if you read the book of Acts, the structure of the book of Acts is intended to show you that the words that Jesus speaks in chapter 1 are fulfilled by the end of the book. How is that possible? Well, they're fulfilled by the arrival of Paul in the city of Rome, which is where the book ends. It's interesting when you think about it. In the Roman Empire, do you know where the center of the world was? It was in Rome. All roads lead to Rome, the famous Roman saying. When they thought about Israel, they thought of Israel as the ends of the earth, the fringes, the outskirts, the boondocks, the sticks. 
That was not a good place to be. Where you wanted to be was the center of things in Rome. But when God looked at the map, he flipped it. And the center of the world is Jerusalem. And the gospel radiates out from the city of David. And it, it, it takes the, the hope and the joy and the liberation with it. Finally reaching the ends of the earth in Rome. It's kind of a remarkable ambition that Paul possesses. At the time, he hasn't been there yet. He's still longing to go. So he's talking about a trajectory that hasn't yet been fulfilled, but it's going to be. And if you understand that, if you understand the direction of his ministry, then you understand the priority of his ministry as well, why he ends where he does. The priority of his ministry was to reach those who had never heard. He says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And we sing, as we just did, the church is one foundation. We sing that the church is one foundation is Jesus Christ. But Jesus built that foundation through men, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, the foundation was built, it was a foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Paul's ambition basically is not to build on top of the foundation, but to extend the foundation. If you were building a house with, with Paul, it might be pretty interesting because as you're wanting to go up, he's constantly going sideways. He's adding more foundation. It's going to be a much bigger house. Paul's ambition, as he puts it, is to make the house of God the largest structure possible. And to do this, he carries the gospel to those who have not heard. This is the same direction Isaiah was pointing in. He quotes the words of Isaiah, the gospel will go out to the Gentiles, that those who have never heard will hear. And he takes that, and now Paul points to us as well. He points the same direction. He says the church must watch for those who have never heard. Grace must watch for those who have never heard. It's easy for us to lose sight of this priority because here in Sioux Falls, we're surrounded by churches. Everywhere you go, there's churches, blocks where you can have like a variety of different churches to suit every taste and need. When you have churches Everywhere you look, you tend to think, well, this place is covered. The need must be elsewhere. But if you're thinking that way, you're thinking wrongly. We live in a hotbed of moralism. We live in a place where people grow up and are assured that they're good, that they don't have a problem, that they are good people, that they don't need the grace of the gospel, that that's for other people, right? Whether you, you know, if you prefer, let's say, uh, you take your moralism with a conservative bent, we have plenty of options available for you. If you prefer a more progressive kind of moralism, we have plenty of options available to you as well. Sioux Falls doesn't need more religion. It needs more grace. Sioux Falls doesn't need more religion. It needs more grace. We are surrounded by a religiosity that inoculates people from the gospel, that assures them that they are good apart from Christ, that Christ likes them just the way they are, and there's no need 
to repent of their sins, a message that assures them that they are strong when they need to hear that they are weak. And here we are at the ends of the earth, not the center, and the gospel is desperately needed right here. Now, Paul does something pretty remarkable when he refers to this epistle. He talks about the book of Romans as a bold reminder. After all that we've covered, all the time that we've spent, the profundity that we've looked at, he says, this is a bold reminder. So I want to speak specifically to those of you for whom this has been a bold reminder. Those who have gone through the book of Romans with us for the past two years, and sure, it's been challenging and you've learned things, but it has been essentially a review. You've been covering ground you were already familiar with. You were already grounded. This was like a refresher course in Christianity, not a new introduction. You were already, to use Paul's words, full of goodness and full of knowledge. You were already able to instruct before we even began. If that's you, then it's time to share grace. If God has equipped you in that way so that this book could be for you a bold reminder, then what he's saying to you and what Paul is saying to you is that it's time to share the gifts that you have been given. Paul points the way. Take it to those who have never heard. You've been spiritually equipped with goodness and with knowledge and the ability to teach. Use those things. And use them not just to build one another up, but use them so that there's more one another's to build. Use them to bring them in and make them one of us. Now, what that means is this. If, if you are, let's say, a, a closeted Christian, you don't make a big deal out of it. Well, people know if they know, but most people don't. You're kind of keeping that to yourself because you don't want the friction, you don't want the aggravation, that sort of thing, then it's time to come out of the closet. If you're worried, you don't want people knowing about your faith because you don't want to be associated with those kind of Christians. You don't want people thinking you're one of those crazy ones that that they talk about on the news. Well, your actions will declare much more clearly the kind of Christian you are than your silence will. Paul is saying we have to watch out for those who have never heard. You can't do that if you're reluctant to be open about your faith. By the same token, if you're one of those people who is really open about their faith, but in a strident and graceless way, if you're one of those people who preaches to the choir in such a way that those who have never heard wouldn't want to hear based on your testimony, then this is a challenge for you as well. Because you've got to walk that back and you've got to start living the kind of life Christ has called you to. Where the offense that you give is the offense of the gospel, not the offense of of your own offensiveness. You've got to wake up and embrace Paul's determination to be all things to all men in order to win some. This is what we're called to do, to be openly Christian but to be ironically, peacefully Christian in a way that we can speak to those who have never heard and bring them to the gospel of life. Because the gifts that God has given you, he has given you for the life of the world. He's given you so many things, but he didn't give them to you so that you could hoard them. 
He gave them to you so that you would have something to share with others. So, if you're not talking about Jesus, or if you're so bristly that nobody wants to hear about Jesus from you, it's time to leave that behind, and you've got to come with us. Isaiah points the way, Paul points the way, and grace needs to follow. We need to watch for those who have never heard. We have to be out there. We have to be waiting to be called and be used by God. There's a weird intersection between dad humor and pastor humor. You'd be tempted to think they're the same thing. I was telling Lori on the way here, I was getting text messages from pastor friends, and I have one who's preaching now in Galatians, and he has to uh, uh, preach a text which includes the phrase, the circumcision party. And so he texted me all of the jokes he had deleted from his sermon based on those phrase, that phrase. And so I, of course, texted back with other jokes he hadn't thought of that, that, that he could also omit from that sermon. It's, it's that intersection I'm talking about where it's like kind of funny, but the, the really funny part is that you think you're being funny, that kind of thing. Well, I've confessed before, I'm not great at song lyrics, remembering the words to songs, especially from from when I was young, and so what I tend to do is, is just make up my own words, and sometimes I do it almost intentionally. There's, there are people who uh, read Christian meaning into anything, you know? There's, there's a book out there that will explain to you the deep Christian meaning of, of any movie that you've ever seen. I'm sure there's a profound book about the redemptive themes in the films of Quentin Tarantino or something like that, and you hear that stuff, and it just feels like straining. Well, I do that to songs sometimes. There's a song, I really like the song, it, it's, it's called The Children of the Revolution, but whenever I sing it, I always change it to The Children of the Reformation, and uh, the, the, the chorus goes, again, this is pastor humor and dad humor overlapping in a big way, but I'm always singing, you won't stop The Children of the Reformation. Pretty strident, bold song, I don't sing it out loud, I don't want anyone to hear it, but, but I'm sharing that with you, because it is Reformation Sunday. And I think there's something about being children of the Reformation that applies to this text, and we need to hear it. It's tempting when you think about what it means to be a Reformed Christian. Uh, I've sometimes described our relationship to the larger church like this. I've said, you know, Reformed people, Calvinists, we're like the Vulcans of evangelicalism. Like somebody's got to bring the logic and the intelligence to the party, and and it's good to have us around. Or if, if you prefer a different kind of analogy, you could think, like, we're like the elves of evangelicalism. Like, you've got all the other little denominations, but eventually you come to us, and and we've preserved all these forgotten truths and make them available to you in our little sanctuary. There aren't many of us, but we make up for it by punching above our weight with our profound theology, our intellectual rigor, our logic, our, our liturgy, whatever it is, and that's the value that we add. We don't have pointy ears like Vulcans or elves, but some of us do have pointy beards, and maybe that analogy kind of works. We tell ourselves we'll let the evangelicals, we'll let the Pentecostals go out and win people to Christ, and eventually those people will be sanctified, and they'll, they'll take an interest in Scripture, and as they do, they'll be unsatisfied with the superficiality of what surrounds them, and they'll find their way to us where the depths of Scripture can be unlocked to them, and that can be our role in the church, kind of the master class on theology for those who are willing to hear it, a sort of finishing school of Christianity. 
And meanwhile, we'll influence the larger church through our intellectual and our cultural contribution, something like that. And there are a lot of Reformed people, children of the Reformation, who are content to stop there. That's all good and well. Those are all good things. But when your spaceship is about to boldly go where no one has gone before, there better be a Vulcan on board. And when your tower is surrounded by the powers of darkness, it would be nice if the elves would show up and help. I think we're often too content to stay inside our sanctuaries and take the gifts that we've been given and store them for the future. To take the theology that we've been exploring and to put it behind a velvet rope. And anyone who comes into our museum, we tell them, look, look at the great theology. As if God had given it to us as, as an adornment. When he gave it to us as a tool. When he gave it to us so that we might go out into the world equipped and join the fight. The children of the Reformation cannot stay at home. We can't stay on the sidelines. To do that would be to forget the glory of the Reformation itself. The glory of the Reformation was not that people discovered Calvinism. The glory of the Reformation was that people, for the first time, discovered Christ. That there was an outflow of the gospel that transformed their lives. When people who had been going through the motions of a dead orthodoxy for generations suddenly found the gospel loud and clear ringing in their ears, that was the glory. They had listened and they had listened, but they had never heard. Until then, until that light shined in the darkness, until it reached them and it lifted them up and brought them onto the foundation, the ever-expanding foundation of the city of God. Sioux Falls doesn't need more religion, but it desperately needs more grace. And we have been called to bring that grace to this place. So let's share grace with one another, but let's share grace with those who have never heard. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.